Our scripture reading today is from probably a familiar passage to you, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 21. Uh, Would you stand with me for the reading? There's not really much need for an introduction to this passage. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee to the town, from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly, There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So I imagine that after a Friday evening of Christmas Eve services, and then a Saturday of celebrating Christmas at home with your family. Now a Sunday that happens to focus on Luke chapter 2. You might possibly feel like you are stuck in a repeat loop of the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Uh, I hope that's not the case. Uh, I hope that uh, familiarity with uh, the, the story of the birth of your Savior does not uh, breed contempt or even boredom for you. I've recognized the 
it's not easy necessarily to preach on Luke chapter 2, the day after Christmas, after you've been exposed to Luke 2 for at least a week now. Um, and hopefully some of the things, it won't just be clever things that you see, but there will be new insights perhaps that would help us to, uh, to take more out of this passage than perhaps we had first uh, seen at first glance. As I was studying and preparing for today, what struck me this year as I read these passages over and over uh, really are just sort of the extremes of the opposites of what you see, especially here in Luke 2. Um, seems like it, it points to the, if not the upside-down nature of the gospel, at the very least, the unexpected nature of the gospel. God does things in ways uh, that we wouldn't necessarily do them. God accomplishes our salvation in surprising ways. And this, I've pointed out that this is, we're going to see this throughout the book of Luke, that, that God does what's not expected. Uh, that when, like especially as we saw, like the people you expect to understand the message, they don't necessarily understand it. And the people that you expect to be clueless often are the ones who, who receive God's salvation with gladness and thanksgiving. The thing is, though, God coming to earth to save sinners itself ought to be unexpected. Like that ought to, we ought to be excited every time we remember that, that God sent his son to earth, not to judge sin, but to take our sin and to save us. I was going to call this sermon the paradoxes of the promise, but I don't know if these are necessarily paradoxes technically. And so... So really just what we see is the extremes or the upside-down nature of the promise delivered. And so we're going to look at a couple of these, four of these. We're going to look at Caesar and Jesus. Uh, we're going to look at the birth setting and circumstances. Uh, in the bulletin, you'll, we're going to flip the last two. We're going to look at the, the angels and the shepherds, and then finally at the message and the actual event, and just kind of see how these things play out. So first, as we look at Jesus and Caesar, or more accurately at Caesar and Jesus, we see here a man who wanted to be a God and a God who became a man. So a few interesting tidbits of information about Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, his name also called Octavian. Uh, so did you know by the time his reign ended, uh, the Roman Empire geographically was about the same size as mainland United States. Uh, by the time Caesar Augustus's reign ended, there were anywhere from 70 to 100 million people living inside the region of the Roman Empire. Uh, Caesar Augustus was, was pretty popular at least among the people that what he did helped them. Uh, interestingly, uh, he was sort of this political figure that some people really liked him. If you were of the crowd that got uh, taken over forcefully by his army, he probably, you probably didn't like him so much. The polls were probably different in your area. Um, 
But Caesar Augustus, like people called him the Savior. He was, he, one of his titles in the Roman Empire was the bringer of good tidings. They even called him the Son of God. Uh, some argued that he actually was the long-awaited Messiah, that he was there to usher in the peace of God. In fact, in the decades that followed of the Roman Empire would be this phrase that would develop the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. He was, and, and in those decades, there would be a new phrase that would come along, even a required phrase of all those who lived in the Roman Empire, stating, Caesar is Lord. It sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? That, that you know, putting this sort of salvation kind of deliverance uh, weightiness to a political figure, to, uh, to look at this guy who, who himself really has no religious scruples whatsoever, and then consider him to be the Savior that God has sent to make everything okay now for his people. Aren't you glad we are so far from that kind of idiocy when it comes to our political leaders? I'm so glad that Christians don't struggle with this in any way anymore, that we recognize that political leaders are sinners who really screw up as much as they fix. But such is the case back then, people had a different view of their political leaders, and they, they had too high a view of them, and so we can we give, give them a little credit. But it's interesting, when you look at Caesar then, and the power that he wielded, and the popularity that he had, it's, it's at least humorous, if not subversive, how, Paul, how Luke uses Caesar. Like, Caesar's the first name mentioned in the birth account of the Savior. Do you notice that? And he is only used as a date and historical marker. It's just to let you know when this happened. That's all Caesar is to Luke. And then even... To God himself, Caesar is simply a tool that God uses to accomplish his will. Here is Caesar exercising his power, completely unaware of how his decisions are going to affect anyone else, and really not caring how his decisions affect anyone else, and deciding, I want a census. I want to know how many people are paying taxes to me. And as a result, it puts everyone's life into a little bit of turmoil and a little bit of chaos. And yet, even while Caesar is clueless, God is doing this intentionally. Because of Caesar's census, Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem when she gives birth. In Acts 17.26, Paul is preaching to the people in Athens. And he reminds them that God made from one man every nation of mankind 
to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted places and the boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God has decided when and where and for how long each of us exist. Each of us live. God determines all of that. God determined when Octavian would be born, what the circumstances of his life would be, what would lead to who he would become, and even that he would desire a census. God moved all of these things, orchestrating them for the purpose of putting the world in the position and in the shape that it would be when the Savior would be born. In Galatians 4, 4 to 5, Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. God was at work. Caesar is nothing more than an instrument in God's hands. So here is this man who fashions himself a God. And yet at the end, he's simply a tool in God's hands. He's a means of moving this couple from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And then juxtaposed to Caesar is God, the actual God. The light of light, the giver and sustainer of life to him In Him we live and move and have our being. He is the Word of God. He is with God. He was God. He took on flesh. He humbled Himself. He came not as a grown and recognized king. He came, He was conceived. He grew and developed in the womb of His mother. He was born in anonymity. He was born in humility. He was born into poverty. In these two men, we see the difference between a man who would call himself God, who makes decisions and decrees with no thought of their impact on those around him, and then a God who would take on human flesh, who would make himself a man, who would make decisions and decrees based on those around him, on their behalf, with no regard to the impact It would have on himself. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so one final thing for us to recognize and remember and rejoice in, especially when we don't understand the chaos and the ridiculousness of what's going on in the world, is that God didn't stop moving things sovereignly after the birth of Christ. God still cares for His people. God still is sovereign over all of life. In fact, Romans 8 reminds us, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. God is still working on behalf of His people, moving things for us. And so we see this this man who would be God and God who became a man. Second, we see the typical birth And the atypical birth. So it's typical, but it's also not so typical. It's typical in one sense because uh, the birth of Jesus is just like any other birth. You know, 
set aside what maybe you've heard that uh, Jesus sort of just magically beamed through uh, Mary's abdomen and, and was born. That's not true at all. Jesus was born the same way you and I were born. And in one sense, it's typical because, uh, you know, the, that saying, you know, no plan survives the first wave of attack. That's, that's kind of true for giving birth too, isn't it? I mean, you can plan, you can have your go bag ready, but in the end, like, the moment it starts, like, the plans are gone. Everything's out the window. Things just are in chaos. I know a man, uh, I know a man who, when his third child was born, his third child, mind you, this isn't his first child, his third child, uh, his wife went into labor in the middle of the night, and so she gently woke him and said, hey, I think, I, I think I'm going into labor. And he leapt out of bed, may have spun around three times like a cartoon character, and half mumble, half terror screamed, what do I do, what do I do? This is their third child. And she just sort of stared at him across the bed and realized the buffoon that she had married. I share this with you in anonymity for you, and I'm grateful that Amy's not here to tell you who that buffoon was. Uh, Jesus' birth was typical in that his birth came in the midst of unwanted trials, unexpected trials. A birth, the birth of a child is already trial enough, but there's always other things going on. So add to this that Mary and Joseph aren't in their hometown. They've had to travel to a town that they know of, that they have extended relatives, but not their closest relatives, not their friends. They're not surrounded by friends and, and loved ones. They're surrounded by strangers. They're in a crowded town, in fact, so crowded, they, did, they don't even have the privacy of the guest, the guest room, which I know is about to ruin many of our nativity scenes and many of our children's pageants, but there's no innkeeper. It's not an inn. It's a guest room. There was no room for them in the guest room. In fact, if you're using your ESV, it says, hey, it might be guest room. Uh, in Luke 22, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, go and ask, where is the guest room that we can prepare Passover? And he didn't send them, hey, go find a nice, decent Airbnb where we could have Passover, something rustic, a little woodsy. No, he said, go find the guest room, an upper room, a, a room where we can go. In fact, in Luke, there's another place where he, Luke talks about inns in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember the, the Good Samaritan uh, cleanses and washes and puts oil on the guy who's been attacked, puts him on his donkey, and he says he takes him to an inn. A completely different word from the word here in Luke 2 or in Luke 22. 
there's a way to say in, there's a way to say guest room. Not important, but just thought I'd throw that out there. That's a freebie for you. It's crowded. Because of the decree, there would have been many extended relatives traveling to Bethlehem. And so the guest room was occupied, most likely by more than one family. And so Joseph and Mary were forced to stay in the common room of this home. The common room would have been on the first level. And at one end of the common room, it would have been sort of open where the animals would come in for the night to stay. And that animal section and the, the common room section would have been separated by probably some pillars and then by the feeding troughs to kind of keep the animals on their side. Mary and Joseph have their child wrap him in his cloths and lay him in one of these feeding troughs because there's just no more room in this house. In one sense, it's just so typical. It's just so mundane. It's just so, well, of course, this is what happens. But in another sense, it's not very typical, is it? Like if you and I were in this situation, our child is going to be born, we're pulling strings. Like we're playing victim cards at the very least. We're, we're going to make sure that the people in that upper room feel really bad that we're not in the upper room. We're going to say, you know, oh, honey, how was your morning? Oh, you know, the baby was kicking all night because I was asleep on the floor, not in the upper room. Oh, how did you all sleep? Yeah, pass the orange juice, please. Uh, we would make sure, or we would, you know, have some extra money, do something. We would, be, we would move heaven and earth to make our lives a little more comfortable. And here is God moving heaven and earth to actually make the birth of his son a little less comfortable. Jesus is born as a servant, born like a servant, and born to be a servant. Which brings us to the other juxtapositions, the, uh, the majestic messengers and the lowly listeners, which, by the way, I realized I missed the opportunity because I could have said the majestic messengers and the ragamuffin recipients, and that's just more fun to say. Uh, so if you want to write that down, ragamuffin recipients, that's a clever turn of phrase. Anyway, these shepherds, they're dirty, they're earthy, they're uh, laborers, they're unkempt, uncouth, unshaven, unbathed. Uh, they sleep, right now they're sleeping in the fields night after night with the sheep. I don't know how many of you have actually gone to petting zoos with sheep. Sheep stink. They smell awful. Like Next time you're at a petting zoo, kids, just shove your face right down in that nice soft wool and take a deep breath. Oh, it's awful. And these guys are sleeping with them night after night. They're not just unclean outwardly, though. They're unclean inwardly. These guys are untrusted because they're untrustworthy. Did you know that a shepherd, you wouldn't let a shepherd uh, bear witness in court? Because you couldn't trust a shepherd to tell the truth. They were these filthy, dirty, mean, ugly, scary, big men. They were like, they were like the bikers of 
the first century. So like they would have, if they had tattoos, well, they had tattoos. There were tattoos in Leviticus. They would have been all tatted up. They were just the, the nasty, grimiest, like you didn't let your kids talk to them. You certainly weren't going to have them babysit anyone. They were uh, filthy. And then at the other end are the angel messengers of God. The very army of the Lord, we're told. These are the, the warriors of heaven. These, these are sinless creatures. They're unaffected by sin. They are, they're so beautiful. They're so bright that in other passages that angels show up, people are tempted to worship them. They're so other than the shepherds. There's just this this picture of these extremes of this audience of the birth of the Savior, which then brings us to finally the the glorious announcement about this very humble event. And the event we've already talked about, but did you notice that like Luke gives all of two verses to the birth of Jesus? I mean, like in a very typical male fashion, he says, and so it came about that the time came for her to have her baby. So she did. And then they laid him in a manger. It's like, really? That's how it happened? That's, oh, how clever. How, how convenient. Wasn't that nice? It's just, oh, like, time came. So she did. Let's move on. Unimportant. And yet the announcement, so the, the, the event, there's no focus. The announcement of the event is full of glory. It's full of pomp and circumstance. Luke gives two verses to the birth, and everything else is about the announcement of the birth. The glory of the Lord shone around the angel and around the shepherds. The glory of the Lord, the Shekinah glory, the the glory, the, you know, the God hovers over creation in Genesis 1. That glory, the glory, the fire cloud that covered Mount Sinai, that glory, the the pillar of fire and of of smoke that led God's people into the promised land, that glory, the the cloud that, that filled the tabernacle when the tabernacle was built, that glory, the cloud that filled the temple when the temple was built, that glory, the the, the glory of the Lord that, that departed, that left the temple and left Jerusalem and left Israel in Ezekiel 10. That glory has come back and it has engulfed the shepherds. This glory surrounds the announcement of the birth of the Son of God rather than glory surrounding the actual birth of the Son of God. And the announcement, the angel says, this is good news of great joy for all people. Right there, the very first announcement of the birth of Christ is telling us this is not a local thing. This isn't even a national thing. This is a worldwide, international. This is the the good news, great joy for everyone. Because born to you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. First, he's a Savior. You need to be saved. He's not a counselor. He's not a life coach. He's not a consultant. He's 
the Savior because you don't just need some advice. You don't just need better rules to follow. You need to be rescued. He is your Savior, and He's Christ. He's the Anointed One. He's the Messiah. In the Old Testament, there were only three groups of people that were anointed. Prophets were anointed by the Spirit of God Himself. The Spirit would anoint the prophet, and the prophet would speak for God. Priests were anointed for the work that they did in representing God's people and bringing the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And kings were anointed for the work that they would do in leading and reigning and caring for the people of God. Prophets, priests, kings, all anointed ones. Here is the anointed one. This is the Savior who is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he is the Lord. He is God Because only God can save us. Only God can rescue us. So here is this one, this one born, Savior, Christ, the Lord. Here's the sign that you'll see. Here's the proof. There will be this huge, glorious glow surrounding uh, Bethlehem. And then as you get closer, it will be more and more blinding until you finally get to this baby up on a pedestal in a golden cradle. No, here's the sign for you. This baby, first of all, will be as normal as normal can be. It'll be wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's not the sign. Every baby in Bethlehem was wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's what you did. That would be like saying, here's the sign. There will be a baby with a binky. No, that's not the sign. The sign was, and it'll be sleeping in a manger. The sign that God has come to earth to save you is that you will see a baby sleeping in a manger in absolute humility. The song is this victory chant. And again, it's got these opposites. Glory to God in the highest. So glory, God, heaven, peace to men on earth. So glory This child is coming, will bring glory to God in the heavens and bring peace to men on earth. Again, God could have come to earth and brought glory to himself and not brought peace to us. He could have come in absolute judgment and just put an end to it all because of our sin. That's what our sin deserves. Also, we can play with peace, can't we? We can toy with peace in a way that it doesn't actually bring glory to God. You know, we can just, you know, let's just pretend our sin isn't such a big deal. Let's just kind of, let's let bygones be bygones. You know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. These, are, these things happen. You know, let's not be judgy. You know, we can fake peace, but fake peace does not bring glory to God. God sends his son to earth, and he brings glory to God and peace to earth because he will satisfy the wrath of God. The only thing left to notice is the the response of the shepherds and how you and I you know, we read these passages and you always wonder, well, where am I supposed to put myself in this passage? Well, you're the ragamuffin 
recipients of this good news. Notice that the the shepherds respond to the invitation. I mean, the gospel is entirely about Jesus. Now, how will you respond? This child is born whether the shepherds move out of their field or not. The Savior has come whether they go to see or don't go to see. Jesus is the Savior, Christ the Lord, whether you accept it or not. So the only question is, will you? Do you? Will you respond to this offer of salvation from God? They respond to this invitation. They bear witness to what God has done. They bear witness to what God has told them. This, again, kind of indicates that there were some folks around. I mean, they weren't talking to the donkeys and the sheep. They get there, they see the baby, and they, it says they told people wondered what this could mean as they shared the events with them. But Mary pondered it in her heart. Apparently, there were other people. It was a crowded room. There was no privacy. There wasn't a cute little manger. Well, there was a manger, not a cute little, what's the thing called? Stable. They were just, it was, there was a crowd, but the shepherds come and they don't care that their reputation is one of, you just can't trust these guys. They don't care. They're going to tell you what they've heard. They're going to tell about what God has told them. They respond to the invitation. We respond to the invitation. And then bear witness to the good news of what God has done for you and bring glory to God. They glorified and praised God. They worshiped God. These filthy men go back to their fields just praising and glorifying God for the salvation that He has worked for them. You know, this time of year, there's always going to be those, uh, you, especially on online anymore, you're going to get article after article, all these opportunities to see, like even from well-meaning Christians, well, Christmas, it's not really a Christian holiday. It's really some kind of pagan and it's like, okay, it's, what, whatever. Is it okay to spend, you know, one day, one season a year remembering what God has done to save us? I think that's okay. I think it's okay to, to focus an entire month on the events that led up to the birth of our Savior, our Messiah, our Lord, And to be reminded that all of this, in order to accomplish our salvation at the cross. I know that we, I probably say this too many times for some of you to to hear, but I know it's starting to to take on, you know. And one of these days, it's going to go beyond like six of us. But your Christmas tree should not have an angel or a star, but a cross, On the top of your Christmas tree. Put a cross on the top of your Christmas tree so that everything you celebrate at Christmas is celebrated in the shadow of the cross because Jesus was born to die for your sins. And that's the the prophecy that Simeon makes both to, to Mary and to us that we'll look at next week. That this child was born to die. It's good for us to celebrate his birth 
and remember why he came, that we needed a savior, a rescuer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. You are our savior, the Christ, the Lord. You are the anointed and sent one from God, the father, and you are God. Only God could save us from our sins. Only a man could pay the penalty we owe. We thank you, Jesus, for the work you did for us. We pray that you would open our eyes to see all the many ways that you are moving earth still on our behalf. God, we pray that you would uh, move us to respond in faith to you, in repentance, to pursue you who have pursued us so doggedly. We pray that as we reflect and meditate on the salvation you have worked for us, it would just produce one thing in us. Worship, gratitude, humility. As we join the angels in singing glory to God in the highest. And we thank you for the peace that you have worked on earth for us. In Jesus' name, amen.